Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. To learn more, go to civity.org. In this episode, we explore how engaging across our racial and class divides can help bring us together to care for and nurture our democracy. My guest is Ian Haney-Lopez, professor at UC Berkeley School of Law and author of several books, including Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections, and Saving America. Lopez says strategic racism is a deeply corrosive force, and he's exploring how to counter its effects by encouraging people to come together across divides so we can focus on our commonalities, develop shared understandings of what we want from democracy and our elected officials, and work together to improve society. Lopez developed the Race Class Narrative Project and the Race Class Academy in an effort to counter dog whistle politics and build cross-racial and cross-class solidarity. Find out more at race-class-academy.com. Your focus on race and racism in the U.S., and your term strategic racism. So there's a way I think we all understand racism and some people understand it differently. It's like, oh, these are individual acts of hate or, um, you know, or uh, intentions of hate. But you're seeing it maybe in a slightly different or um, uh, larger context. I'd love to I'd love to have you talk about how you're defining that. Maybe the way to define strategic racism is to think about somebody like Bill Clinton. So came of age during the civil rights movement, close African-American friends, no reason at all to believe that he's a bigot or that he harbors anti-black prejudice, that he holds to it consciously. At the same time, as he looked at the electoral landscape in the United States, he realized he would have to pander to white racial anxiety about African-Americans, that Republicans had been using similar tactics to win elections, and that if he wanted to compete effectively, he'd have to do the same thing. And when he did so, when he talked about welfare as a code for African-Americans or cracking down on crime as another way to generate a specter of black violence in the minds of white voters, that was strategic racism. It was racism in the sense that it was an intentional effort to draw on, promote, stimulate racist prejudices and fears. But it was strategic in the sense that it wasn't personal feelings of animus. It was cold calculation. It was political maneuvering. And now here's the thing about strategic racism Strategic racism may be the most destructive form of racism in our society over the last half century. We tend to think about the most destructive bigots as the the the, the hate-addled individual, uh, even if you will, a lynch mob. But our government, our two parties, have been dominated by strategic racists 
for half a century, and that the harm they've done, including racialized mass incarceration, um, an incredibly cruel immigration and deportation system, um, massive disinvestment from cities and regions understood as predominantly inhabited by people of color, the damage, the pain they've caused through their strategic racism, through their cold calculations, through their calculus of political uh, strategy, that's been much graver. It's inflicted much more serious wounds on Americans at the individual and community level than anything an individual hate-filled closet clan member could possibly have done. So you're saying that it's a, it's part of the system. I'm not sure I would use the word system. When I think of the word system, I think about institutions which are both bureaucracies but also normal ways of behaving, institutionalized behavior. Strategic racism is a story that's much more individual. These are folks who are looking around and who are saying, I want A, B, or C. And for politicians, it's I want to be elected. But let's also have some of these right-wing multi-billionaires, the Coke Donor Network, for example, and they're saying to themselves, I want low taxes for my billions. I want to make sure my corporations get to write the rules. I want to be free from environmental regulations. People have goals. They have agendas. And then they say, how do I get there? And very often they say, well, in the United States, the surest route to electoral politics and the surest route to hijacking democracy is by stoking racial conflict. That's strategic racism. So when I say strategic racism, I really want to highlight the calculus of individuals looking around for means to achieve their objectives. Now, it's so common, it's so deeply a part of our of our political fabric now that, that it would make sense to say this is almost the norm in American politics. Certainly it's the norm with the Republican Party. But I don't want to describe it as a system. Um, I don't want to describe it as something that's essentially operating out there with without human intervention. Um, yes, maybe people are participating, but they lack a consciousness about these these patterns and these structures, or they lack an ability to change them, right? All of those connotations that come with system thinking and institution thinking. Um, years ago, someone promoted the concept of racism without racists. That was a systemic analysis. That was saying, hey, We've built racism so deeply into our society that if we do nothing, if we just go along with it, we'll be embroiled in significant racial inequality. That's racism without racists. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, frankly, some truly despicable behavior where people say to themselves, hey, I want to get elected or I want power or I want to pay less taxes. I want to hoard my billions. And the best way I can see to do that is to push people into hating and fighting each other, to push government to try and lend legitimacy to the lie that some communities are basically 
dangerous and pathologically violent, and government can promote that lie by building prisons, the best way for me to achieve power is to scare the bejesus out of Americans about immigrants, even if that means tearing families apart at the border. That's truly despicable. More importantly for this conversation, it's an act of choice. They don't have to do that. They could do something else. They could not do it. Even better, they could name that that's what is happening in our society and denounce it, stand up against it. That's the point about strategy. It's cold calculation. Sure, it's widespread, but it is not systematic in the sense of being so deeply institutionalized. People aren't thinking about what they're doing. So you mentioned uh, earlier and just a moment ago that that part of this strategy is to stoke division, is to pit people against each other, and that this has caused a lot of harm. Now, Civity's relational approach could be an antidote to that. And that fraction divide is certainly since the civil rights movement, but I, I, I would argue that's sort of been a piece of the game for, uh, you know, for hundreds of years. Why is it so effective? I mean, why does it persist? Well, let me break those those two apart, um, because I think what you're saying about this being true for hundreds of years is actually a really important insight. One of the things that is critical to realize here is that we're grappling with the very nature of racism. Like, what is racism at root? And for most of us, we have a sense that racism is interpersonal conflict, the, the sort of um, an individual who hates another because of the color of their skin. And then there's a sort of a little bit more radical understanding that says, hey, this isn't evenly distributed in society. We have this long history of white supremacy in the United States. We really ought to think about white racism or racism as a set of practices that elevates whites above other races in the United States. But even there, notice, we're still thinking about racism in terms of the relationships, maybe now the subordination and oppression of some racial groups by another racial group. Whereas the conversation we're having now is saying, well, racism's that, but racism is more fundamentally about a quest for power, about a quest for wealth, about a quest for control over government. And in this story, racism isn't just about group relations. Racism is about power and the way it exploits group conflict in its own interest. When I talk about racism that way, and a shorthand would be to say racism is the primary weapon in the class war that's being waged right now in the United States, right? That would really get at it. Racism is the primary weapon in the class war that the very wealthy are winning. When I say it that way, a couple of things. One, it really helps us see that racism is inseparable from other important social dynamics, in particular capitalism in the United States. The other is it may generate the impression that racism isn't 
real or that racism is less important, that, that really we should be talking about economics. And that's a huge mistake. In the United States, class warfare and racism have always been inseparable. Whether we're talking about the foundation and defense of the enslavement of people from Africa or the dispossession and genocide of Native Americans or manifest destiny and the U.S. taking of the northern half of Mexico or empire and the U.S. extending its power to Puerto Rico, to Cuba, to the Philippines, to Hawaii, or whether we're talking the last 50 years. Neither class warfare nor race is primary, neither is secondary. Both are inextricably interwoven. They always have been. What happens is that with the civil rights movement over the last 50 years, we kind of forgot that. And we started really thinking about racism as just relations, sometimes just between individuals and sometimes just between racial groups. But the truth is our most radical freedom leaders, Martin Luther King, Cesar Chavez, W.B. Du Bois, Dolores Huerta, these people understood race and class always in the United States work together. There's no racial justice without economic fairness. And there will be no economic fairness without a racially egalitarian society. And that's such a uh, powerful concept that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that in the 60s in particular, a lot of the civil rights leaders that you mentioned, several actually reached across that race divide to people from similar classes to try to gain solidarity or, or work together. And that that was not looked at kindly by those in power and that there were there were some definite... Um, violent pushbacks on some of those efforts. There's a, a saying in the civil rights movement that our, that our fates are linked. We often think of this as describing our fates within a racial group. But really the core insight is all of us in a democracy have a linked fate. And if we recognize our linked fate, if we develop practices of social solidarity, of building power and trust across divides, we can take care of our own families. But if we don't, if we turn against each other, then we all fail individually, community by community, racial group by racial group, but we all lose for ourselves and for our children the future that we envision. Yeah, and this is very similar, I mean, from a different place, but very similar to where civity has come in that we need to be able to connect across these divides for the sake of democracy, that democracy is at stake if we cannot speak to each other across these divides and differences and find some common ground. Democracy itself is a means to an end. Yes. And what we're seeing now in public polling is that an astounding number of Americans are saying, in order to secure a decent future for my children, if what that requires is that I reject democracy, that I support politicians who strip the vote from others, if I 
support politicians who feud with the press, if I support politicians who are authoritarian in their tendencies, I'm okay with doing that if that's how I'm going to take care of my family. When we defend democracy, we shouldn't defend democracy as if democracy is our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is a society in which our families are secure, our children can be provided for, we are at peace with one another, we're not under constant threat of violence, we have realistic routes of upward mobility, we have realistic prospects for care uh, in our old age or in the midst of calamity. We have as great a liberty to define the meanings of our life and the meaningful relationships of our lives as is compatible with a stable society. These are the things that we're fighting for, that we want. Democracy is the way we get there. And so now when we say cross-racial solidarity in an effort to fight for democracy and economic freedom, economic justice, really what we're saying is cross-racial solidarity is the route to the sort of society we hope for for ourselves and for our children. Yes, the definition of what democracy means to us. It needs to be said, and I'm so glad you said it, and also needs to be cultivated. It's like a garden, a relationship. It's it's something that, you know, if we want to have that kind of society, that's something that we don't just – it's not an end point, and then we're done, and then we can kick back and relax. So we say we want this, and yet you mentioned that there are a lot of people now who are entertaining the idea of, you know what – this seems over here, this idea of authoritarianism or this idea of maybe getting rid of some of my rights so I can, I can have this and that, that feels interesting. So why in your estimation is it that people are entertaining these ideas and why is this divide and conquer strategy working so well on us? I think to understand the power of racial fear and anxiety to tear us apart, you have to look in a couple of directions. One, you have to look at the strategic races. And so there we can tell a story about the politicians from Barry Goldwater to Richard Nixon to Ronald Reagan to George H.W. Bush and then to Bill Clinton saying, well, if you can't beat them, join them. Let me try this too. Like all the way through Donald Trump, you got to look at the strategic races. In the camp of the strategic races, you also have to look at reactionary billionaires and the think tanks they've funded. These are folks who don't believe in an opportunity society. They believe that the rich should be the main engines of social progress, that they know better, that they should be allowed free hand to make as much money as they want. But once they've made that money, they want to use government to hem themselves with protections to make sure the government serves uh, and furthers their interests, they too realize that democracy is a threat to them, that people acting to take care of each other threatens their ability to hoard their billions and to rule over working people and to pollute the environment. 
And so they too turn and support strategic racism. And now we also have to add media personalities. There are a lot of people, and I'm thinking Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, Ann Coulter, Sean Hannity. There are a lot of folks who are essentially hucksters of hate because it plays to a popular anger and uncertainty. They're making millions doing this. They're peddling hate for their personal profit. Those are all the strategic racists. Or put differently, when we look at the people actively promoting division, they are some of the most wealthy, most politically powerful, most media savvy figures in our society. It's an enormously powerful army of hate. That's one direction in which we have to look. But then we have to look at the defense, the rest of us, the Democratic Party, the universities, the labor unions, the foundations. You're listening to This is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Ian Haney-Lopez, law professor at UC Berkeley, about the importance of solidarity and engaging across difference to counter the divisiveness of strategic racism in the U.S. And the sad truth is, for most of the last 60 years, the center and center left has been silent in the face of this racist onslaught. Or, if you're looking at the Democratic Party, has sometimes actually joined with the racist onslaught itself. They've been silent because so many of these racist fears are playing on deeply embedded stereotypes that many liberals themselves share. Are black people a threat criminally? Would my children be safe going to an integrated public school? I've never been on welfare. What's the government ever done for me? Isn't that taking from my pocket? All of these sort of right-wing themes have found their resonance with the center and the center left, or, or much of it. And then also it's the case that a lot of the center and the center left has been trapped in understanding racism simply as individual animus or group dynamics and has not seen clearly that those pushing division are pushing division as a strategy for electoral or class warfare. So 50 years in, 60 years in, and, I, and I'm dating this to the sort of, let's say, the Nixon presidency. What do we have? Some of the most powerful, well-resourced, media-savvy factions of American society pushing racial hatred 24-7. And the great bulk of supposed opponents saying little or nothing. So that we're exactly in that situation where people use shorthand like democracy or Democratic Party or um, economic security, but they're not saying what's really at stake. They're not describing for people what we're really about. 
because they don't even recognize it's what we're really about. At root, fundamentally, that Abraham Lincoln truth, a house divided cannot stand, that's us. That's where we are. And the powerful figures on the right know it. And so they divide our house to better take control of our government and our society and our economy. Whereas we in the center and the left, the sort of broad center and left, what have we done to unite our house, to create the sense of linked fate, to create the sense of commonality, of curiosity across difference, to, to actively promote cross-racial solidarity? For 50 years, we've done almost nothing. Yes, and that's why the work Civity is doing and the work you're doing is so critically important as a way to get people to see each other's humanity, to reach across these divides and differences which have become so entrenched. Also to help those in privileged positions let go a bit of what you're talking about and choose to build community instead of further stoking divides. I wanted to mention your book, Dog Whistle Politics. Dog whistle means only certain people hear it, but it feels as if dog whistle isn't dog whistle anymore, that we all get it. We're all hearing it going, there they go again. In that sense, there's an awareness. I would also argue that for some, maybe there isn't an awareness of what the real issue is. I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding about the point of dog whistle politics. So dog whistle politics is a term that uses a dog whistle, a whistle for training dogs that blows at such a high frequency that human ears can't hear it. It uses the dog whistle as a metaphor for the idea that certain political speech is in code and that, for example, if one says states' rights or forced busing or um, the silent majority or urban crime, illegal aliens, terrorists, that these terms on their surface have no reference to race but underneath, they directly communicate a racist message to an audience that understands them. That's half right, but more importantly, it's half wrong. How is it half wrong? It's absolutely correct that dog whistling is designed to trigger strong racist fears and anxieties about supposedly dangerous and threatening others. But it's wrong to think that the audience hears that message clearly. On the contrary, the civil rights movement achieved an enormous success in making clear to the vast majority of Americans, including the vast majority of white people, that white supremacy is ugly and immoral. People don't want to think of themselves as racist. They, they don't want to be Klan members or neo-Nazis, not in the main. I mean, if we look at the numbers for those organizations, they're somewhere between 2 and 6% of the population. That's not who most people are. But just because you reject the Klan or reject the neo-Nazis, that doesn't mean you're free of these racist fears. They're there. The strategy of dog whistling is to stampede people who are convinced they're not racist, to convince those people that their deeply internalized racist fears are in fact not racist, 
but are instead common sense. So Donald Trump would say, I'm the least racist president ever. And he would say, if you're worried about criminally legal aliens coming over the southern border, you're not a racist. You're a patriot. That's common sense. And he'd say, if you're worried about crime in the cities, you just want to protect your family. And he'd say, if you're worried about terrorists from Muslim countries, that means that you want to protect the country. You want to protect your family. You're not racist. Over and over again, Donald Trump got what most critics of dog whistle politics still haven't understood. The point is not to appeal to people who know in their hearts that they favor white supremacy. The point is to stampede as many Americans as possible with racist ideas while still communicating to them, but you're not racist. You're a good person. Right, because no one wants to see themselves as not a good person or evil. So to counter that, you and Civity have been doing different work, but adjacent work, to bridge these divides and communicate these ideas and connect people across these these really fractured uh, differences that we, that we have. And I'd love to talk now about uh, your work, uh, just your work in general, and I, I know about the Race Class Narrative Project, um, but what, what are you doing now to sort of address and counter all of these things that we've been discussing? So after I published Dog Whistle Politics in 2014, really laying out that this had been happening to us, that this racial electoral strategy was deeply connected to a class war that had essentially broken the New Deal and siphoned trillions of dollars from the vast majority of us, and hurled it up into the economic stratosphere. After that, I began working with unions and foundations. And in that process, began working also with communication specialists and pollsters to try and figure out how to effectively communicate you know, the tactics of the right and the need for all of us to join together in order to stand up against strategies of intentional division. And that led to the Race Class Narrative Project. It led to uh, a free public website that I've put together, raceclassacademy.com. And I really understood the, the principal work at that point as being about giving people a language that they could use that through poll testing, through focus groups, we'd proven could be effective in creating an awareness of strategic racism and creating a sense among people of what they needed to do to come together to fight it. But in the last couple of years, I've really come to think that the most important work is really not a search for the phrases or precise language to use, but really an effort to push people to rethink racism itself. And when I say people, I mean both, to put a direct name on it, white people who've tended to think that racism is a problem primarily for people of color, but also 
racial justice activists who tend to think that racism is primarily a white problem aimed at people of color. Both sets of folks, which is to say almost all of us, really need to rethink that and really need to say, wait a minute, racism is the principal weapon in the class war the rich are winning. And the greedy rich succeed when they convince us to fear and hate one another. If we could get that insight, then the next insight follows, which is, I think, the sort of the civity insight. If the main threat we face is divide and conquer, then almost all of us immediately recognize the pragmatic solution is to unite and build. And that's the work, I think, of civity to say, we're under direct threat through a strategy of divide and conquer. Let's do the hard work of building connections across difference. Yes, because it's the moral thing to do, but perhaps more importantly and more immediately, because it's the pragmatic thing to do. The only way to successfully counteract divide and conquer is to unite and build. Yes, exactly. Civity really is hoping that our work can cultivate connections across these differences. And we definitely see this as a foundation to the democratic goals you're describing. And I appreciate the fact that you're looking at people on different sides of this issue, um, people that don't see race as an issue but for, uh, you know, white, white people basically who don't see race as an issue but for people of color, and also people in the social justice space who've been pushing hard, rightly so, to try to get some, some movement on this issue, but bringing these sides together to bridge these differences and to help them see each other's humanity is something that, yeah, of course, Civity finds hugely critical, extremely critical to being able to retain and strengthen democracy and all of the things that come with it. I think in the main, the single biggest threat to the welfare of white families in the United States, the single largest threat to the welfare of white families in the United States is racism against black and brown people. Because it's precisely these deeply internalized stereotypes of pathologically violent people or people with a foreign and inferior culture or people invading across the border. It's precisely these fears that are leading a majority of white people to elect politicians who frankly don't give a crap about them. Right. And they're voting against their own interests. Against their economic interests. They're voting for politicians beholden to, indebted to, economic titans. They think they're voting for their interests in the sense that they think they're voting for politicians who will defend them as the silent majority, the American heartland, those people who made America great. But that's the lie. That's the lie. Those things aren't true. The heartland of America is our values. And our values are shared across racial groups. Those who made America great, that's always been a multiracial group. The silent majority, that's multiracial in the United States. But when they've been convinced 
to vote for these politicians beholden to the economic titans. They've helped create a society in which real wages are stagnant for half a century. Trillions have been transferred to the economic stratosphere. We've moved from a relationship, a regulated economy that was inclusive and provided routes of upward mobility to a corporate-controlled economy that is extractive in its relationship to the vast majority of us, to a society in which politicians routinely deny health care to people who vote for them who are dying for the lack of that health care. That's the society that people voting racial fears have created. You're listening to This is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Ian Haney-Lopez, law professor at UC Berkeley, about the importance of solidarity and engaging across difference to counter the divisiveness of strategic racism in the U.S. So when I say the single largest threat to the well-being of white families is black and brown racism, I don't mean that just in the moral sense that racism is a a poison of the soul, though I think that that's true too. I don't mean it also in the social sense that there's a lot of segregation and fear that leads people to wall themselves in, which is a hard way to live rather than being engaged and open and curious about others. Again, I think that's true. But the claim I'm making is in terms of hard, cold quality of life? Do you have a job that pays? Do you have a pension you can rely on? Is there equity in your home? Can you afford a home? Can you send your children to good schools? Do they have a future that's brighter than yours? If there's a a serious medical issue, is health care available to you? White people have destroyed themselves when they've listened to and been bamboozled by politicians and right-wing think tanks and right-wing media personalities into believing that it's people of color that threaten them, when it's not. It's the strategic racists who are the biggest threat, the strategic racists doing the bidding of the economic royalty, who are the biggest threat in the lives of white families today. Right. You mentioned healthcare. Who controls how the healthcare system works? It's people in Congress. And who controls, uh, for me, I come from media, I'm a former journalist, and watching the extraction of local newspaper profits and, and real estate money to the hedge funds, they're not reinvesting. And that harms us in so many, there are so many studies on, if you don't have local journalism, you're less informed, you, you're less likely to run for public office, there's more pollution. There's so many Examples, and that's just my own little ecosystem. And for whose benefit it's controlled. There's never a question about whether the government should regulate the marketplace. It always does. It necessarily does. There is no marketplace without government setting the basic rules. There's never a question about whether government should be involved in the marketplace. It always is. As government structures the market, it can structure it in a way that is inclusive, that works for the vast majority, that provides realistic possibilities of economic opportunity. Or government can structure a marketplace that is extractive, uh, 
that treats the population as it would a stand of trees, something from which wealth is to be harvested. Clear-cut them. Take everything there is. Leave nothing but barren ground. That's the extractive model. But it's being applied not just to the environment. It's being applied to us. So on that note, you've been trying to counter that, and I think a lot of people, and, and this idea of bridging across the differences that keep us divided and unable to really address what's happening and to feel like we have no power. And so I'm curious, what are some of the results of your work using solidarity to bring people together, trying to bridge these differences? I think that the race class narrative project was enormously successful at the level of establishing the effectiveness of these sorts of messages through message testing, through polling. And then from there, we've seen, for example, um, Democrats in Minnesota use this message effectively. We've also seen grassroots groups. I mentioned earlier Reverend William Barber's New Poor People's Campaign, uh, People's Action, um, SCIU as as an enormous labor union is deeply committed to this race-class fusion perspective. And yet, I can't help but feel like so many people struggle with these two twin insights. We're being intentionally divided. We must respond with intentional coming together, with intentional solidarity. And, and that's really, I think, where Civity is doing tremendous work. We must be intentional about creating solidarity. And when I say we, I mean all of us as individuals looking around at our own lives, our own workplaces and saying, how do I get to know these people across differences that I don't really know about? I also mean labor unions. I mean foundations. I mean universities. I mean churches. I mean local and state government. I mean the federal government. We are at risk of losing the United States as a democracy because for 50 years we haven't responded to strategies of intentional division. The sort of response we need, the commensurate response is 50 years of intentional solidarity building. This isn't something we do just today or tomorrow. This is a core insight that we need to work towards. We must, in all of our efforts, in every sphere, continually strive to build a sense of social connection and solidarity and linked fate among Americans across all of our myriad differences. I'm reminded of the classic phrase from the American Revolution. It's actually the the Latin phrase that's on the seal of the President of the United States, e pluribus unum. It was the core insight of a fledgling democracy composed of people from different countries in Europe coming together and saying, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And the insight wasn't we're all going to be the same. And frankly, we have to be clear, 
that insight that all groups would be welcome as part of the one, that wasn't honored either. And yet the brilliance, the revolutionary potential of the insight was there already to have a successful democracy in which our families can thrive requires that we recognize that out of our many different origins, we share the same fate. And to recognize as well, and I think this is the the genius of 250 years of American history, that the restrictions of the founding fathers need to be left behind us. That the one needs to include women, it needs to include people of all races, it needs to include people with different visions about how to organize their families, their love, their relationships. That the core insight out of many one needs to be recovered, reinvigorated, given new power for a new multiracial, egalitarian, economically just society. Yeah. And Civity hopes to be, you know, you talk about social cohesion and Civity sees itself as being intentional about creating social cohesion. I want to ask you one more question, and that is, how did you come to this work? Why this for you? I've been a student of race and racism in the United States since I was in law school. And for several decades, I was among the many who thought that racism is mainly a white problem for people of color. And then Barack Obama was elected. And now I knew enough about race and racism in the United States to scoff at the idea that we were suddenly post-racial. But Obama's election for me presented another sort of crisis. I had thought that mass incarceration was a clear manifestation of white racism and that now a black president and a black attorney general would surely dismantle the cruel, massively unfair system of incarceration that we created. But they didn't. And far from dismantling mass incarceration, they exported many of its techniques and much of its logic to the deportation context. Barack Obama, over eight years, deported at a sustained level more people than any other president of the United States. Why? Why did he do so? And it was a crisis for me, both the sort of personal political crisis of why is he doing this? So many lives, so many families destroyed, but also the intellectual crisis. I'd been thinking the story was white racism. Here's this individual who I happen to know because we're at law school together. This wasn't white racism. And that's what led me to realize this was normal politics. Obama understood that politics was conducted in the United States in terms of racial fear stories. And he needed to protect himself against those fear stories by showing how tough he could be on people of color framed as criminals or threatening. And once I saw that, it was like this epiphany because I realized I had been misunderstanding racism. I had been getting it wrong. And that this new recovered understanding of racism, and again, it's this older, more radical conception, Du Bois and King, they understood this. Dolores Huerta, Cesar Chavez, they understood this. 
that this more radical conception of racism was also more radically emancipatory because it promised freedom not just for communities of color, but for all of our communities when we linked arms, when we stood together. And it was really a sort of a a turning point for me, both as a race scholar intellectually, this shift in paradigm about what racism is, but also professionally, because it really came to seem to me at that point that this shift in perspective was the was the key to rebuilding a belief in American democracy capable of answering the enemies who beset us, the the class war we're losing, the the hucksters of hate, capable of responding to them, and capable of actually building the good things, the good society that we dearly want for ourselves and our children. Thank you to my guest, Ian Haney-Lopez, professor at UC Berkeley School of Law, author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, as well as Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America, and founder of the Race Class Narrative Project in the Race Class Academy, focused on countering dog whistle politics and building cross-racial and cross-class solidarity. Find out more at race-class-academy.com. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. To learn more, go to civity.org.